name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We believe you today, Jesus. We thank you today. We thank you today, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Jesus, and Jesus. that makes us different as a church is the fact we are apostolic. There are some unique things in that book about what apostolics did. And one of them was they would take handkerchiefs and pray over them and take them to the sick. And God would honor their prayer through simply praying over that handkerchief. We as apostolics believe that that works. We not only believe it works, we have seen it work. God is well able today, and He will meet the need. He will do it. If you have your Bibles and will turn with me, I told them I was going to Luke 17, but I'm actually going to go to Matthew chapter 24. So I'm throwing them a curve here this morning. Luke, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 through 10. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I want you to notice verse 10 with me. Then shall many be be offended then shall many be offended. If you go to Luke, 17th chapter, beginning in verse 1, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. 
but woe unto him through whom they come. The Lord bless you. you may be seated. Before I begin today, let me say what a great honor it is to be home. And there's really no place like home. There's no place you just feel comfortable with the people that are there. And uh, it was such a pleasure to be with the men the last couple of days and to enjoy fellowship. I'm afraid that one of our biggest struggles that we have today in the world we live in is the fact we don't have fellowship like we should. And the lack of fellowship is producing issues in our lives of the lack of trust, um, the lack of commitment. If I can't talk to you, there's no way I can trust you. Trust is directly connected to my ability to have a conversation. And if there's no conversation, there's no trust. So fellowship. The first church went from house to house in fellowship. And in this last day, that will be one of the issues. While we were talking uh, with the men Friday night, Brother Schindeldecker asked about preaching about the coming of the Lord and why we don't hear much of that today. And he really got me to thinking. I thought about it all the way home. I thought about it last night. And I got up early this morning, and that's all I could think about was the coming of the Lord. One of the problems I think we have had in addressing the coming of the Lord is we've been more concerned about the moment or the time instead of the conditions that will develop that will bring about His coming. So we have spent too much time focusing on the day or the hour or the moment that it might take place instead of seeing the conditions that develop that are going to bring about His coming. Matthew chapter 24 Jesus has been in the temple. Actually, he arrived into Jerusalem. John records his return. And uh, he comes from the Mount of Olives riding on the donkey. And he comes into the city of Jerusalem. And as he's coming in the day before or maybe early this morning, whenever this event takes place, it, it records that as he looked at Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, how oft would I have gathered thee as, as a, a hen would gather her brood. I, it was my desire to protect you. But you, you just wouldn't allow it to happen. And he, he speaks in the temple for a time. And then apparently in Matthew 24, he exits. And as he's exiting the temple... And he got far enough away from it. And the odds are, according to the rest of this passage of Scripture, they have left the eastern gate of Jerusalem and walked down through the Kidron Valley and up the other side of the hill, which is about a mile away. And there at the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, they turn and they begin to point out to Jesus and say, look at all of the structure of that city and there's the temple and isn't it a glorious sight? And, and why are you telling us that it's going to be destroyed? That, that Surely, if you're from God and that's important to God, why would God allow this building to be torn down? Jesus 
takes this opportunity to point out to them that there will not be one stone left on top of another when this is dismantled. And today, there is no stone left on top of one another. What Jesus prophesied to them that day came to pass. And when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, he dismantled that entire building from top to bottom, and there was nothing left. Jesus said, this is the sign that sorrow is going to begin. But there are other signs that you need to pay attention to. And the, the signs that you ought to pay attention to is that there will be many Christs. And to us, we, we, we think that that's a person that says they're Jesus, but that's not what the Word says. The word literally, Christ, translates anointed. There will be many that are anointed that will call themselves anointed. And they'll have all kinds of messages to preach to you. And they'll have all kinds of uh, of sermons to preach to you. And they may appear to be anointed, but they're deceiving you. Why? Because... Iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Because there's such an opportunity for evil to exist and, and for evil to come about that the love of many will begin to diminish. And today we're, 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 we're fighting battles that we didn't have to fight 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. There, there are struggles happening around us today that most of us that are sitting here today that are old enough would have never thought it would have been possible for that to happen. I don't know that I would have ever been convinced that America would have ever become such a pagan nation. That that thought would have never crossed my mind as a child because all my life in school, I heard someone pray every morning over a PA system to us as we began our day. And, and today, you're not allowed to even pray. And so today, we have become almost a godless society. And because of the lack of the influence of God in our world, it really makes it easier to sin. Why? Because there's no conviction produced even by the world you live in. Because there's no conviction by the world you live in, then sin becomes easier and easier and easier to be involved in. I've had conversations with family members over the last couple of weeks that, that have troubled me as, as I'm listening about struggles that are happening and, and, and pressures that the world is producing and the lack of moral values that our world says are no longer necessary. And it it would almost appear that we may have become a little comfortable with these issues. When I was a kid, if you lived with somebody outside of marriage, it was called shacking up. Today, it's the introduction to marriage so you can find out if you're compatible. So, it's no longer sin. Why? Because the world 
doesn't convict us anymore. There was a time that the world's standard of living was high enough and elevated enough that you and I probably wouldn't lie to each other. We wouldn't steal from each other. When I was a kid, Dad used to drive up in downtown Wichita Falls with the windows down in the car and leave the keys in the ignition and we'd go off and shop for hours and come back and the car still parked there. Doesn't happen today, does it? So stealing becomes much easier because everybody tolerates it and it's not any big deal. Lying becomes easier because the world tolerates it and you don't even know if they're telling you the truth anymore. So, because iniquity abounds, and it's everywhere, that's one of the signs that the Lord is coming. But as I was reading that passage of Scripture, the one that just jumped off of that page at me was the one about offense. And many shall be offended. And today, if there's an issue that I see more prevalent than Any other issue that we're having to deal with, it is the issue of offense. Offense is rampant. It's almost a disease today. It has become so incredibly rampant that there are very few people you come in contact with that you don't talk to over just a few moments' time that you don't start detecting a little bit of offense. We've been offended by politics. We've been offended by our uh, the world we live in. We've been offended by our school systems. We've been offended uh, by our neighbors. And now we're being offended by each other. It's almost like we wear our feelings on our shoulders. And the moment that something happens that offends us, then... The easiest thing is just to run away or to exit or to get out or, or, or to cut it off and never return. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, Luke 17, I have preached from this passage of Scripture here before. Actually, June the 5th, 2011, on my 60th birthday, I preached from this passage of Scripture right here. And three weeks after preaching from this passage of Scripture... I was preaching in a singles conference and felt impressed to address this issue to about 1,200 singles. And when I got through addressing this issue that day and I exited the room, uh, there's a set of double doors to the left. I went out in the set of double doors and there's a little foyer and then to get to the pastor's office, you have to go outside and through another door. So I'm just about to walk outside and and down the hallway, I hear my name being called. And so I stop there at the door and, and I wait for a few moments. Here comes a young man running down the hallway and and he by the time he gets to me, he's kind of out of breath. And he stopped me and said, uh, Brother Hughes. I said, yes, sir. Uh, he, he stood there a moment, catching me. But he said, I need to tell you something. I said, okay. The Lord sent me to talk to you. And the Lord sent me to tell you that you're just an old man on a soapbox and nothing you have said today is spiritual. Now, if you want to be offended, I dare you just to address the subject and then you'll get offended. 
You know, there's some things about living for God that's not pleasant. And here it is. Whatever you preach, you will be required to practice. God will not allow you to say something in life and preach something in life that He doesn't demand that you practice as well. Now, I'll have to tell you that James Hughes showed up that day. And James Hughes did not like what happened that morning. And if someone had a video camera on me and had taken my picture, the odds are they would have seen my face change colors. Because I can tell you that the first thoughts through my mind that morning was, do you have any clue how old I am? Do I look like I'm 20? Do I look like I'm 50? My Bible says, rebuke not an elder. Is that in yours? Now, is there an asterisk with a condition to it? I wanted to say to that young man, just look at me. I, I may have been wrong in what I said. That's a good possibility. I really don't think so. But if I am, what gives you permission as a 25 or 26-year-old to say that God sent you over here to tell me I'm an old man on a soapbox. You know what's sad is? That is what we've come to in life. When somebody says something to us that we don't like, and it, it challenges the way we live or the way we think, the, the young man was offended by one of my remarks. And, and he had put together this uh, network, I guess it's what it's called, of single Pentecostals. And he was wanting everybody there to get on same page he's on and validate that this is a good idea to just connect all the single pinnacle. And he wanted about 20 minutes to explain his program to everybody and the pastor wouldn't let him do it. And matter of fact, the pastor before I got up stood up and he was quite blunt in his approach. And he said, I told you you couldn't do it to start with and I am highly offended that you're going behind my back and talking to everybody here on the sly trying to convince them that it's okay to do what I told you you couldn't do. Now that's our world. We don't need a preacher. We don't need a pastor. Our world says that we don't need anybody that would convict us about sin or our issues are our relationships. Jesus said, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. That's a prophecy. Just as much as He prophesied of the end of time, and in the prophecy of the end of time, this many shall be offended. And the sad part of it is, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Because Jesus prophesied that's going to happen. 
And it's, it's amazing as I, I, I look back over, I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble today with what I say. Please just hear me out, okay? Brother Shindle Decker, you really got my brain working. I, I've been in Houston for 41 years. Eldon and I came to Houston and we back, packed our bags up as a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, and we decided it was time to go to Bible college, and we came to Houston together in 1970. And when we got here, we, we were two young people from a small church that there were only three other young people in the church besides us, or four, not a very big church. And we got to Houston where there are churches of 400, 500, 600, 700 people, and we were quite awed by what we saw, and there, there was just a lot of things happening here. And he and I lived here long enough to marry our wives, and my wife's from Houston, his wife was from Vider, and, and we wound up living here, and our families came. And I, I've been here long enough to watch us. And the saddest thing to me is the powerhouses of revivals that used to be here don't exist anymore. They're not here. What happened? People got offended. And the offense began to eat at them, and eat at them, and eat at them, and eat at them, and eat at them. And they had fence become so monumental to their lives that it changed a lot of things about them. And, and then life starts drifting. And then you start looking at... You know, offense will cause you to look at life and, and, and look at some things and say, you know what, if they can do this to me, then how can this be bad? And the first thing that happens in offense is we seem to think that God's involved in it. That God lets people do these kind of things. That, that God tolerates people offending us or hurting us or doing things that, that cause us issues. That, that God permits all these horrible things happening. And, and if God really loved me, why does He let people do these bad things to me? So the first thing that crosses our mind is that God's involved in it. And there's no truth to that. God is not involved in offense. God don't offend people. He's not in the business of offense. He's not letting people offend you. He's not offending me. I may be offending you, but I sure hope this morning I'm not. I, I, I'm trying my best not to do that. But there's a possibility that what I say can be offensive, especially if you have a wound of any kind. It's offensive. I watched Brother Steve come into this place this morning. I wanted to call him a hero. There's no one had more of a struggle in life than he's had. Just removed a toe recently, and he's walking on it. He, he doesn't let pain cause him to get bitter. You know, God knows who he can trust with some things. And, and, and when some things happen in life, God's well aware who's capable of handling some things, who's capable of not handling them. And God, God does allow certain issues to happen in our life, but He's not going to offend us.
after preaching that sermon, I didn't preach it very many other times because every time I did, it had a terrible result. I was in Oklahoma preaching in a church outside of Oklahoma City about a year ago, and I have felt impressed to speak on this subject again. And so I was preaching from this passage of Scripture, and there's so many ways you can go with it. There's probably ten sermons that can be preached from Luke 17. And and as I was preaching from it when I got through that night, uh, there was a gentleman came up to me after service, and he introduced himself. I'd met him the day before, and we'd talked, and he'd come up, and he said, Brother Hughes, I don't want to be offensive, but I, I need to point something out to you. So I, I'm thinking, oh, no, not again. I'm remembering that 28-year-old that said, this old man on a soapbox. And so I, he, but he's not 28. He's, he's close to my age. And he said, well, here's, I, I need to point something out to you. And I said, okay, what, 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 what is it? He said, you mispronounced a word. I said, okay, which word did I mispronounce? Uh, that tree that, that you pronounced in uh, verse 8, you, you, you mispronounced it. You called it a sycamore tree. And I opened my Bible and I looked at it and sure enough, he was right. And 40 years of preaching, I have always read it, sycamore. And there's no O in it. It has an I. It's not a sycamore tree. It's a sycamine tree. And he said, let me tell you my story. And he started telling me the story that was quite shocking. I won't share all of it with you because some of it, well, it's just not appropriate to share. But he, his life had been destroyed because of an offense. He was actually a minister at one time, pastor to church, and was having problems with a lot of stress, and so he went to his doctor and told him that he was having problems with stress, and his doctor looked at him and said, you know, you're under a whole lot of stress. You're a pastor of church. You're dealing with people. And it appears that you have no way of relaxing or no way of, uh, of dealing with your stress. So it probably wouldn't hurt you every night before you go to bed just to drink one glass of wine. And he thought, well, I really shouldn't do that. Why? Because we know its consequences. But stress kept building, got worse and worse and worse, and so finally he decides maybe that's a good idea. He took that first drink. Within six months' time, he's a raging alcoholic because one glass don't help. And that's the problem with any sedative you put in your body it will have a point where it doesn't help anymore. And they have to elevate it. So if you've got pain and 
you think you got to have something to eliminate the pain or curb the pain, and, and, and you get your doctor to give you a Tylenol with some codeine in it, and after a period of time, that amount of codeine is not going to help, and they're going to have to elevate it. And then when they elevate it to that level, they're going to, uh, after a period of time, that won't help. They're going to elevate it to the next level. And when that don't help, they're going to have to elevate it to a new kind of medicine that has a more powerful sedative. And, and there will come a time that they'll have to stick a morphine pump on you somewhere and just inject morphine straight in your body because your body gets tolerant to it and it don't work. And why any doctor with good sense would tell anybody to do something that dumb, I don't understand where, where in the world he's come. But that was his advice. And so then his life started downhill. The stress that was happening was because he thought his wife was unfaithful. And she was. And he's trying to handle it. And so it's easier to numb. And, 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 and all these issues keep building. And chaos happened. His marriage ended in divorce. He wound up homeless. Living under a bridge in a major city. And he lived there for about seven years before he finally one day decided, you know what, I need to do something about my life. And he started the process of getting out. And he marries another lady, and, and their relationship is terrible. You know, God, didn't, God never intended for a person to get married at 60. It's, it's 2025 is when we started. It's, it's, the older we are, you know, we're not tolerant, we're not kind, we just speak our mind. And so it, it, it marriages that start when we're older are just a little more difficult for us. We've got to really work at it. But we can make it, but it's, it's going to take more work than it did when you were 20. That's just a fact. I, the older I get, the more brittle my body becomes. My bones are brittle. Everything about me, I don't. There's no elasticity at all. I I don't bend much. You start bending me, and I, and I get offended, and and we just, you know, I, I realize I got 12 years of life left or eight years of life left, and so I, it's just not enough time left to to mess with junk, and so we just speak our mind. We think we have a right to say what we want to say when we want to say it, and. And so it, we just become less tired. I'm not a better person at 62. I can promise you that. I'm not kinder. I am not nicer. I, I don't love people more. I'm not more patient. I'm not more tolerant. When I get on the freeway and that guy wants to cut me off, I don't want to bless him with a good day. I don't want to pray that God turns every red light green so he can get to where he's going before I do. I, I want to bless him with four flat tires. I just... God understands where our real issues are. And our real issues are with offense. And when Jesus addresses this with these disciples, they say to Him, Jesus, we need more faith. And I can't find very many places that those twelve men ticked Him off, but they ticked Him off this day. And Jesus gets angry at them, and He says, You repeat after Me. You say what I'm saying. He made them go to the first grade, and they all twelve had to say, We, when we have done which is that which is our duty to do, we are unprofitable servants. We are worthless people. 
Now, if that irritated Jesus so much that he would demand that they say those kind of things, that's a good indication. This is a serious problem to all of us, and we've got to all pay attention to it. And I'm discovering the older I get, this is the biggest battle I fight every day of my life. i got to fight not letting people offend me and set me off and, and say things that irritate me. And, and, and I, I, I'm discovering that my temper lies just below the surface and it's ready to flare up at a moment's notice. Now, all you kind, patient people... I, I realize none of you have the problem I'm battling. I'm just being transparent today. This It's not an easy thing to do. Jesus said it's going to happen to me. And what Jesus said is, the closer my coming gets, the worse it's going to be. You all know why we know He's coming really soon? Because too many people are getting offended too easily. And we're looking for these signs in the world and the signs that are around us. He said, no, no, don't look at the world you're looking, living in. Start paying attention to your own self. And you'll see in you signs. I'm, I'm coming soon. And so Jesus said, if you just had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, pinhead size, you'd say that sycamine tree, be thou plucked up and planted the seed, and it would do what? It argue with you? Say, nah, who do you think you are? You know what? We, we Pentecostals have created a devil that is so powerful and so big that there is no controlling of him. He's out to get you. He's going to wreck your life. He's going to destroy you. My Bible says resist the devil. He'll argue with you. Is that what it says? Uh, could I point something out? Every time you make a spirit out of something, there's something else the world has said God has produced that you have to justify. If you make homosexuality a demon, then you've got to accept they're born that way because neither one of them is their problem and they can't fix it. We've got to be careful. This offense thing in the end, it's, 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 we've we created it. It's a devil everywhere. And, and, and I'm hearing people talk about things. I'm thinking, where in, how in the world could you believe that kind of junk? Someone calls you on the telephone and, and they don't answer. That's the devil harassing you. Get a grip. Do you think you're important enough, that important for the devil to harass you? He didn't harass Jesus that bad. We just have all these spirits and the sign He's coming is what? People will be offended. Well, this man's sons are rock stars. And they have a song they wrote called Holy Roller Novocaine that has made them multi-millionaires. I saw them first on the airplane flying to Oregon one day. There was a news clip playing on the airplane, and they were interviewing these guys. And I'm thinking, I know who you are. And he said, when I come back to God, that song's about him and his wife. 
and their problems. He said, when I come back to God, and I finally got back to church, I was so bitter at what life had done. He said, God took me this book. And I started rereading Luke 17. And I read it again, and I read it again. He said, one day the Lord impressed me to find out what a sycamine tree was. And so I started digging. He said, I'm not going to tell you what a sycamine tree is, but it would be a good idea if you'd find out. So when I got home to my, or got back to the motel room that night, I called my wife and said, Honey, I need you to do something for me. Uh, just, and I, I told her where to look and what to do, and, and, and she started finding this information about a sycamine tree. And like, Give me the characteristic. What, what is a sycamine tree? And, and, and the thing about a sycamine tree is that it's indigenous to the Middle East. It's not only indigenous to the Middle East, it's one of the most prolific trees that live there. That tree is almost impossible to kill. Its roots do not grow along the ground. They grow straight down. They start looking for water. And it doesn't matter how deep the water is, those roots will grow until they find water somewhere beneath the surface and drought won't kill them. Famine won't kill them. They're still there in the middle of a famine because they have found water buried beneath the ground. And when, when, when you they get to that place in life, they're impossible to kill. If you cut a limb off and stick it in the ground and water it, it'll grow. It needs no roots. It grows by itself. It will reproduce roots wherever you stick it. So if you just cut a limb off and stick it in the ground, you're going to get another sycamine tree. And if you cut another limb off and stick it in the ground, you'll get another sycamine tree. If, if something happens to break one off and it just happens to fall where some dirt will be close enough to it, it'll start finding its own roots. If you cut it off, it'll grow back. If you dig the root ball up, it grows back. If you don't pull every root out of that ground, it will return. Now here's the problem with sycamine tree. Its fruit's bitter. Its tree trunk is used to make caskets. So Jesus says to those 12 men, I'm telling you about life, and you better get a grip with what I'm telling you, because if you don't learn this lesson... Whatever is offending you will become the casket you are buried in. Whatever you allow to get under you and to irritate you and start working on you and eating at you will eventually produce a tree that they'll make your casket in. And I read a passage of Scripture in Solomon, and it says, The spirit of a man can sustain his infirmities, but a wounded spirit who can bear. It got my attention. Where'd Solomon get that information from? How did Solomon get to this point in life? How'd Solomon get to the point where he could say that a man's spirit can sustain his sickness, his infirmities, the things that happen to him as an, a human being, uh, the tragedies of life. His spirit can tolerate, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? And it dawned on me. 
He got it from watching Dad. And that passage of Scripture is the epitaph written on David's tombstone. This is what will happen to you if you let it keep happening. What will your children write about you? I guess I'm getting old enough to think about that today. What are my kids going to write about me? Was Dad offended by so many people that he just become full of anger and rage? And You see, it got to the point in David's life that his wives were not permitted in his presence without his permission. Joab recognizes that Adonijah is secretly seeking to take over the kingdom. He's the eldest child. And as the eldest child, he should be heir to the throne. And secretly, he's going from place to place and, and group to group and talking about that when David dies and, and, and he's off the scene, then I'm, I'm the one heir apparent to the throne. And, and, and Joab starts hearing these rumblings and he goes to Bathsheba and he says, Bathsheba, you need to go talk to David because if you don't go talk to David, Solomon's not going to become king, and, and Adonijah is going to take over the kingdom, and Solomon will not be the king. And Bathsheba responds, but I haven't been invited. I can't go. I don't have permission to come. Joab implies, it doesn't matter if you've been invited or not. If you don't do this, your son will not be king. So, she goes. So David makes Solomon king four years before he dies to make sure that Adonijah can't do it. And before his death, he tells David, or he tells Solomon, when I die, if Adonijah gets out of line, execute him. That's his own kid. Just put him to death. And he did. And Solomon had him executed. When I die... I don't want Joab outliving me, so he needs to die with me. So execute him as well. Why? Because he had been offended by too many people. And I got started counting the offenses of David, and there's at least 30 offenses in the life of David. He's offended by his own father because he's not included as part of the family. When Samuel comes to anoint a king, he's offended by his brothers. When he goes to visit them in war and they, they, they mock him, make fun of him, he's offended by Saul, he's offended by, by uh, Nathan, and, and he's, or not Nathan, Nabob, and he's offended by his, his own son, Adonai, or uh, Absalom, when he has his other son, Adonijah, kill, Adonijah kill, uh, rapes his daughter and he does nothing about it, or Ammon rapes his daughter and does nothing. There's just offense after offense after offense after offense after offense. You can't allow... Fences to just continue. Got to get rid of them. And the only tool you have to get the junk out of your life that will contaminate you and wreck you is forgiveness. That is the only tool that is available to get the junk that gets attached to you off your life and for you to be whole. And for that to happen, for forgiveness to truly happen, you have to give up all hope of revenge, and that includes God. For true offense to happen, you have to say, God, 
Take your blood, go to their Lamb's book of life, erase this sin, and never judge them for this act. It's not easy to forgive people. Not easy at all. You've been offended. What are you going to do with it? Please stand. The sign the Lord's coming is that offenses will multiply. But how will we handle them? What are we going to do with them when they happen? We're going to be offended. People are going to hurt us. They're going to injure us in life. That's life. Jesus prophesied it's going to happen. Jesus taught those disciples, as I taught you two years ago, that if they offend you, it's your responsibility to make them feel like the most valuable person alive. 